Well, would you like to belong to that church? Church all about me, that's right. Church where I get what I want. And it's funny, and we know it's wrong, but you know what? Every single one of us wants early church to be like that. We know it will be a disaster, but sadly that is often exactly the way we approach our church family here. That's why sometimes we get bitter. That's why sometimes we're jealous. That's sometimes why we're disgruntled. That's sometimes why we're disappointed. That's sometimes why we're hurt within early church. Because we haven't received what we think we deserve. Because we have been treated as less valuable than we believe we really are. It's actually exactly the opposite, of course, to what God calls us to as his people and his church. And yet it feels so ingrained within us. So let's pray and ask for God's help and God's grace as we think about these things. How about we pray? Heavenly Father, we, uh, we thank you for the chance once more to come before you uh, and your word and have you address us. And Father, um, as we think about these things once more, as we've been praying each week, we want to confess our pride to you our pride before you and our pride before one another. And Father, we ask that by your spirit, using his sword, your word, you might continue your good work of stripping away those things. And Father, we ask that you might give us grace, that you might make us humble, and so give us even more grace. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well... As A.B. mentioned over this holiday break, we've been thinking about humility. And I warned you, if you were here at the start, I warned you that three weeks was nowhere near long enough to cover everything in the Bible about humility. And I think I've found really in preparing and delivering these talks every time, I know that I've bitten off more than I can chew. And I've discovered that attempting to preach on the topic of humility has been good for the humility of the preacher. But having thought about our humility before God last time, we now need to consider the necessity of our humility before one another. And so to do that, as Dave read for us, we're going to return to the passage where we began uh, three weeks ago um, in that stunning portrayal of the humility of Jesus. So if you turn with me uh, back to John 13, and we're up to point one on your outline, and uh, have a look with me, please, at verse 12. Verse 12, when he had finished, that is, when Jesus had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I've done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. That's a fairly stunning bit of the Bible. It's a stunning command there. Jesus puts himself forward as the model for our humility towards one another. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done. 
you also should wash one another's feet. Now, remember what we thought about uh, as we considered Jesus washing the disciples' feet a couple of Sundays back. It was entirely self-humiliation. It was Jesus putting aside his own honour. It was Jesus putting aside his own claim to glory. It was Jesus utterly demeaning himself. Jesus, the Son of God, the one who had come from God and was returning to God, the one who knew that God had put all things under his power, Jesus, knowing that, made himself the very lowliest of servants. Not because his disciples deserved it, not because they earned it, not because they were lovely. He washed even Judas' feet hours before Judas betrayed him to death. It was a stunning event. It was shocking, it was radical, and it was profoundly disturbing. It's an event, you see, that turns upside down every single thing that we instinctively think about greatness and rank and image and power. And Jesus here stunningly, radically, disturbingly says, I have set you an example that you should do as I have done. And can I say, brothers and sisters, that with that single sentence there in verse 15, Jesus defines the way that we are to relate to one another if we belong to him. He defines the way that we are to, to relate to one another if we belong to him. And we need to understand that this morning. How should I behave within early church? That sentence of Jesus defines everything that you need to know. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done. What would Jesus do? He would give up everything in order to serve. He would willingly humble himself to the lowest of lows in order to be a servant. He would willingly put aside his own claims in order to be a servant. That's what Jesus did. And that is what Jesus calls on his disciples to do as well. There is no me church for Jesus. It is entirely you church. And it would be a mistake to think that all that Jesus meant here was that we were to wash each other's feet. And interestingly, the practice of feet washing is only mentioned one other time in the New Testament, almost in passing. Clearly, the apostles recognized that Jesus meant here in John 13 something more than merely washing each other's feet, although it can't mean less than that. It can't, it can't mean less than that. And so in some churches, they still practice foot washing as a symbolic reminder of this command of Jesus. Nevertheless, Jesus' command is very plain. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done. And it's not a one-off command either. You could look later in Mark chapter 10. I'll put the reference on your outline. In Mark chapter 10, in a conversation where Jesus was speaking into the disciples' arguments, they were arguing among themselves about who was the greatest among them. And Jesus said this in verse 43, Whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve 
and to give his life as a ransom for many. Greatness, servanthood, slavery. That's greatness in the kingdom of Jesus. That is greatness in early church. Servanthood, slavery. For the king himself came not to be served, but to serve. And of course, brothers and sisters, let's not forget that as stunningly disgraceful as it was for Jesus to wash the disciples' feet. That was nothing. It was nothing compared to the disgrace of Jesus humbling himself even to death on a cross. The extent of Jesus' servanthood, the the depth of his humiliation is seen most fully in the way that he gave up his life as a ransom for many. Though he was rich, for your sake he became poor. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. Despised and rejected a man of sorrows. Now, of course, only Jesus is qualified to save rebels from the judgment of God. But even so, his saving, serving death, just like the washing of the disciples' feet, is the model you see. That's the benchmark that he sets for our humility before one another. He set an example for us that we might do as he did. And so there is the benchmark. And with that example before us, uh, let's consider then the look. couldn't think of a better phrase for it. Maybe you can suggest one for me. But the look of humility in the disciples of Jesus. And in one sense, you know, there's, there's to be no part of our life that is untouched by this command of humility. You know, as children and parents, as citizens and leaders, as workers and bosses, as husbands and wives, there is no part of our life that is left untouched by Jesus' command to be humble as he was humble. The example of Jesus dominates how we live out each of, our, each of those roles in his name as his disciple. But I thought that our focus this morning might be more on our general relationships that we share uh, with one another as members of early church. What's to be the look of humility in the way that we relate to one another as members of early church? So point two on your outline. And to help us, I thought we'd focus on just one passage. There's lots to choose from. And I was going to do lots, but then as I started working on this one passage, it was, took so long and it was so great that we're just going to focus on it. So Philippians chapter 2, that AB read for us earlier. You can turn to that. That would be helpful, I think. Philippians chapter 2, I'll give you a moment to find it. It's a really important passage on humility. It's one we looked at before. We've probably referred to it each time, in fact. If you have a look at Philippians chapter 2, though, in verse 6, from verse 6, of course, there's that profound and poetic description of the, of the descent of Jesus into greatness. From verse 6, you can see it, incarnation, obedience, obedience to death, even death on a cross. But this morning, it's verse 5, I reckon, that should jump out at us. Have a look at verse 5. Immediately preceding the description of Jesus' humility, we read this, verse 5, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Now that's a wow sentence. That's sort of a stop and pause, gulp a bit sentence. 
It's almost a repeat of Jesus' words back in John 13, isn't it? It's almost a repeat of what he said in Mark chapter 10. Your attitude, says the Apostle Paul, should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. And that call there in verse 5 is like a summary statement of what comes before in verses 1 to 4. So we're sort of working our way back up the passage at the moment and have a look at verse 3 with me. This is sort of leading up to that, you know, your attitude should be the same. Verse 3, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. There is the look of our humility. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, pride. Notice with me there Paul's assumption. Can you see it? What's Paul assuming there in verse 3? Paul's assumption is that what instinctively will drive us in our relationships with one another, what instinctively will drive us will be selfish ambition and pride. Otherwise, he would have had no need to say it. That's his assumption. Paul assumes that the way we relate to one another, by default, will be out of selfishness and pride. And that's a really important thing to take note of. Because we should realise that there is a battle to be humble. We're going to talk about the confidence we can have in the battle later, but for now, let's just recognise the battle. When you walked into the building this morning, selfish ambition and pride were powerful forces of influence working within you. She walked in the front door and you noticed people in the foyer. Selfish ambition and pride were seeking to influence your thoughts. As you noticed what people were wearing. As you noticed who was talking to who. As you noticed who didn't sort of smile at you. As you chose who to notice and speak to and who to pass by. Selfish ambition and pride were seeking to influence you the entire time. Your attitude as you took your seat, where you chose to sit. Then as you looked around the room and saw other people. Then the way that you've responded to stuff that's happened from the front, from announcements and comments and all of that stuff. It's all been a battlefield in which your pride has been a serious combatant. And I've only just then, the last minute or so, snatched just a very, very small sample of just a few moments of this morning, okay? Now think beyond just now in this setting, Sunday by Sunday. Think more broadly. Think about the way that you think about others in this church family. Think about the people that, you know, maybe in the past week or so you've said no to, either out loud or in your mind. Think about who you've chosen to help and not to help. Think about the way you've decided who to be involved with and who not to be involved with. Think about the way you've organised your time with others within this church family. Think about the things you've chosen to do and not to do. It's been a constant battlefield and your pride and your selfish ambition have been serious combatants. And of course, you know, if it hasn't been a battle, if you have no idea what I'm talking about, if you think, gee, he's going on a bit long about this stuff, 
chances are that is because you are entirely enslaved to your pride and your selfish ambition such that that's all that drives you. There's no battle because there's nothing else other than pride and selfish ambition. And if I say those hard words and you're thinking of someone else in the room, then your thoughts condemn you. You see, the Apostle's assumption here is that selfish ambition and pride are instinctive responses driving the way that we relate to, other, to, to others. And that is a really important one to wrestle with. Because otherwise we'll take, we'll take none of this very seriously at all. Now we'll hear Jesus' command to follow his example. No big deal, it's an easy one. But it is a big deal. And it's incredibly difficult. Especially when you notice... That incredible word in verse 3, can you see it? Verse 3, can you spot the incredible word? Nothing. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Do nothing. It doesn't say, you know, try and avoid mostly. It says do nothing. The apostle leaves us with no room for pride. No room for selfish ambition. How could he? How could he? If the Son of God could empty himself completely and humble himself to human flesh and even lower to go to death on a cross, what possible room could there be for pride and selfish ambition in the life of those whom he has saved? None. It can be no room. Jesus has set the benchmark as high as it can be, or if you like, as low as it could possibly be. Selfish ambition and pride are not to shade our relationships with one another at all. Do nothing out of selfish ambition and pride. That's an incredible command. And we need to feel the weight of it. We need to feel the audacity of the apostle at this point, really. Because as you think about your place here within the early church family, as you move within the network of relationships and responsibilities of early church, do nothing out of selfish ambition or pride. Negative commands like that are hard to obey, aren't they? It's hard to simply stop doing something. It sort of creates this vacuum. There's nothing there. If I'm not to show selfish ambition or pride... I sort of need something to take its place. I need an alternative. And just like everywhere else in the Bible, the positive, the positive counterpart to the negative command is supplied. It's very helpful. God doesn't leave a vacuum. Instead of selfish ambition and vain conceit, instead, can you see it? Verse 3, what do we do instead of it? Well, in humility, consider others better than yourselves. That's the opposite alternative. If I'm not to show selfish ambition and pride, if I'm to do nothing in selfish ambition or pride, I'm to do everything in humility, considering others better than myself. But of course, you may be thinking, but what if they're not better? And when he says better, better at what? I'm a better tennis player than so-and-so. What's he mean, better? And I think, you know... For me anyway, and I'm thinking for you too, it's actually easier for us to be humble before God than it is to be humble before those around us. Because to be humble before God, sort of, well, it makes sense, doesn't it? He's our holy creator. He's our judge. He's our saviour. But when you look around at the people around you at the room now, 
What do they have that you don't have? What's in them that means you ought to be humble before them? That seems to be much harder. But those questions actually miss the point entirely of verse 3. You need to read it more carefully, and so do I. What Paul commands as the alternative to pride and selfish ambition is to consider others better than yourself. To consider others better than yourself. In other words, to count others better than yourself. I know I'm picking on just words this morning, but I think they really matter. So here it is, ready? The question is not, are they better? The question is, will you count them as better? Will you consider them as better? Are you prepared in the name of Christ and for the sake of Christ to count as better than you those around you in your church family? Are you prepared to count them as more significant than you? Are you prepared to count them as more important than you? Are you prepared to make that calculation? Because that's humility. That is following the example of Christ Jesus. Counting other people as worthy of your help and your time and your money and your hospitality and your attention and your genuine care. And not passing over people because you count them as unworthy of those things. And of course, in our sophistication, we don't, we don't tend to speak like that even to ourselves. We don't, we're not sort of that crass, are we? Or they're unworthy of my attention. When we're talking with someone and they obviously need, need to talk, but we're busy and frustrated, you know, we don't often say to ourselves, I'm not going to listen here. This person is unworthy of my love and attention and care. We are much more sophisticated than that, but we think it. We convince ourselves of the same truth. It means the same. And the command of the apostle, the command of Jesus, they have got to pierce through our sophistication in our selfishness and our pride. And you see, folks, we need to make a genuine choice, genuine choices in relating to one another. We need to make genuine choices to count the person in front of me at any given time, my brother or sister in the Lord, we need to count them as being worthy of my love and attention and care and hospitality and generosity and time. Because if we don't make that genuine conscious choice, then chances are selfish ambition and pride will win the day. And I think some symptoms of failure in this area are things like jealousy of other people in this church family or jealousy of other people's situations or a lack of thankfulness or a presence of bitterness or discontent or anger at other people. And I think if those things have like a, a prominent presence in your heart and your mind, they are like warning lights flashing on the dashboard saying pride, and selfish ambition are too evident. According to verse 4 in Philippians chapter 2, we have got to make a genuine, active, deliberate choice to look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Paul's command there sounds really similar to the command of Jesus, the famous one, to love your neighbour as yourself. See, we have, a, we have a natural and a right and a strong interest in our own health, our own safety, our own happiness. 
And that, that self-love should now be the measuring stick of our love for others, you see. So you think about it. The energy which, with which we pursue our interests is now the measuring stick of how much energy we should invest in pursuing the interests of others. You will listen to someone as much as you want to be listened to. You will help someone as much as you want to be helped. You will have empathy with someone to the same degree that you desire to be empathized with. You know the way you hate to be snubbed? That will drive you not to snub the person around you. That hurtful way that you've been carelessly used by someone, that's going to fuel your determination to not carelessly use another person in this church family. You know, your disappointment, you know those times when, you know, no one seems to notice you're really not doing okay and you've sort of, you've given little hints as you speak but no one's really picked up on it, they've just passed it by and that really hurts. Well, that will mean that you will now treat the words that other people share with you as like treasured insights into their soul. In order to avoid, you see, the sin of selfish ambition and pride, you will actively and genuinely and deliberately look to the interests of others because you will actively and genuinely and deliberately count them as better, as more important, as more significant than yourself. And maybe no one will notice. Maybe it's best if they don't. But what you will be doing will be following the example of Christ who counted his disciples worthy to have their feet washed, who counted you worthy to die for your sins, who in humility chose to, be, to serve sorry, rather than to be served. It's interesting and, and illuminating and encouraging, I reckon, that in Philippians chapter 2, Paul goes on to give some real-life examples of the sort of humility he's describing. His preeminent example, of course, is Jesus. Um, but he gives us real-life examples, too, of ordinary sinners like us. And I think they're helpful because it helps us recognize that what Paul is commanding here is not impossible because I'm sure as I've been speaking, you'll be thinking, that sounds impossible. But have a look at verse 22 with me just quickly. You can read these later and have a think about it. But in verse 22, Paul describes Timothy. Well, actually, I'll start from verse 19. Verse 19, Paul says this, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, that I also may be cheered when I receive news about you. I have no one else like him, ready for it, who takes a genuine interest in your welfare. For everyone looks out for his own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. Isn't that interesting? What Paul is commanding back in verses 3 and 4, they're not theoretical impossibilities. Timothy lived it. And so can you. Or Epaphroditus in verse 25. Let me read there. But I think it's necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus, my brother, fellow worker and fellow soldier, who's also your messenger, whom you sent to take care of my needs. For he longs for all of you and is distressed because you heard he was ill. Indeed, he was ill and almost died. But God had mercy on him and not only on him, but also on me to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. Make sure you read that one carefully. Epaphroditus was ill and he was distressed. He was severely ill, almost dying. And he was distressed. Why was he distressed? Not because he was ill. Not because his hometown of Philippia hadn't heard that he was ill and he was keen for their sympathy. Epaphroditus, can you see it? He was distressed because he was worried that his illness might cause the Philippians 
distress. That sounds completely wrong-headed, doesn't it? About as wrong-headed as a master washing his disciples' feet. About as wrong-headed as someone counting another as more important than themselves. About as wrong-headed as someone looking to the, another's interest with as much zeal as they look to their own. About as wrong-headed as the Son of God willingly humiliating himself to death. And we say, that's not wrong-headed. That's glorious. That's Christ-like. That is normal behavior for a disciple of Jesus. But how could it be? If Paul could assume, okay, our selfish ambition and our pride, how can he, knowing that, how could he also command humility and selflessness? How could Jesus command that we follow his example? Is that some sort of cruel joke? How could Timothy and Epaphroditus pull it off? See, our quest for humility can seem hopeless. But in fact, you know, God in his word is full of hope. How can that be? What's the hope of our humility? Well, the answer is Christ. Christ is our hope. And you see, folks, Christ is more than just our example. He is our saviour. And his salvation includes not only freeing us from the penalty of our sin, but also rescuing us from the power of our sin. Rescuing us even from the power of the sin of our pride. He's a great saviour. He's a powerful saviour. And so in Philippians chapter 2, you know, tucked in between the commands to humility and the example of uh, Timothy and Epaphroditus is an astonishing combination of command and promise. Command and promise. And I want us to finish by having a look at it together. See, having just recounted Jesus' descent into greatness, Paul returns to his command in verse 12 there. He, he returns to his command for humility and holiness. And have a look what he writes. Verse 12, I hope I'm not jumping around too much for you. Verse 12, he says, Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence but all, now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. I used to think that, you know, work out your salvation, you know, figure it out in our brain. But Paul's not meaning that. He means obedience. He means work it out, live it out. And he's saying obedience matters. Humility matters. If we are truly saved, then we will exhibit the humility of Jesus in our day-to-day life and relationships. And so Paul says, look, this stuff matters. So with fear and trembling, work it out, live it out. Well, not much hope there for us yet, is there? We need to keep reading. Verse 13. And here's one of these stunning connecting words, okay? For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. Now, you need to breathe that truth in, brothers and sisters. You need to ponder that carefully. Have a look again at verse 13. Because there's our hope. Okay, there is our confidence. Why should we strive for humility? Because God himself is at work within us, making us humble. God himself works in us what is pleasing to him. And brothers and sisters, the spirit of Christ is graciously given to us who belong to Jesus by faith. The spirit of Christ. The spirit 
of the very one who humbled himself so astonishingly in washing his disciples' feet and even more astonishingly in his saving, serving death on our behalf. Can you see what a difference that makes? Can you see what a difference that makes? In our quest for humility, in our quest for holiness, we struggle and we strive to put off selfish ambition and pride. And we struggle and strive to put on humility and love. But we don't struggle alone. That's the thing. We don't struggle alone. There is a battle to be humble, no doubt about that. There is a battle to be fought. We need to recognize that. But we can fight with confidence and hope because the Spirit of Christ, using his sword, the Word of Christ, is at work within us. And the goal of his work, the outcome of his work, is that we might will and act according to God's good purpose. And that's how Timothy and Epaphroditus pulled it off. It's the same spirit that led them to humility and love. It's that spirit that can even lead us to humility and love. As he applies the saving work of Jesus to our lives and transforms us. Transforms even the way we think. Even the way we think about ourselves and others, that we might be truly humble. So brothers and sisters, let's be led by him, the spirit of Christ, as we trust in the mercy of God and the promises of God. Let's keep in step with him, the spirit of Christ, as we seek to prayerfully obey the word of God. The objective is very clear this morning. Jesus calls on us to follow his example of loving, humble service. It is an incredibly high calling to incredibly low, self-denying service. So, brothers and sisters, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceits, but in humility, consider others better than yourselves. That we pray. Heavenly Father, as proud, selfish people, we ask for your mercy, we plead for your mercy, and we thank you for your grace. We thank you, Father, that as your people we have been saved, not because of righteous things that we have done, but we've been saved through the righteousness of Jesus. We thank you, Father, for the spirit of Christ, which you've graciously poured out on us. And so, in Jesus' name, Father, and with the confidence of the Spirit's work, we ask, please, that you might make us humble. We ask that you might forgive our pride, our selfish ambition, our vain conceit. We ask that you might forgive our attitudes in the way we think about one another in this church family. We ask that you might forgive our attitudes and the way we think about ourselves within this church family. Father, we want to think of ourselves with sober judgment, not more highly than we ought. 
Father, we want to count others as better than ourselves. And we so much need your help. Father, we thank you that you are at work within each of us who belong to Jesus. And we trust you, Father, to complete your work. And as you do that work, Father, fill us with zeal to be obedient, humble servants of you and one another. We pray this, Father, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen.